Hi, everyone, and welcome to Lift Your Life. Today, my guest is gut health coach, Manny Tora. Manny, how are you doing today, mate? You okay? Yeah, I'm very well. Thank you for having me on your podcast, Bali. No problem. It's an absolute pleasure. So Manny is going to be talking about his life. He's got a very, very inspiring story to tell, and I've got so much respect for this guy. So um, Manny, I'm looking forward to delving into a bit more detail about your story. So, Manny, how, how are you finding things at the moment with lockdown? To me, lockdown, life goes on, so it makes no difference to my life. In fact, I've been far busier in lockdown than I was pre-COVID, so I'm so busy with my health coaching, I'm busy with my personal life, I'm in the middle of getting married and moving house. It's a lot going on, so life oh, wow. goes on. Oh, wow, congratulations. And yes, uh, as it's been so long now, I think people have just got, used to and just become accustomed to it you can either sit there with your hands in your head and turn around and say do you know what we're in lockdown and life's so crap or you can just crack on with it and think about what the positives are absolutely people are taking it in two directions either letting it consume you or you turn it into a positive from my point of view i'm turning every little opportunity into a positive for, for me i would have never been been able to start my business in health coaching if it wasn't for covid so for me it's a massive positive in that respect Good, good, good. So, Manny, just to start off with, so tell us a bit about your your childhood. So I know, well, we're going to delve into quite a bit is going to be around um, the Crohn disease. Um, but if we can start off with understanding your childhood. Yeah, absolutely. So from a, a mental health point of view, my childhood, I've always been a small kid, a skinny kid. I developed Crohn's disease at the age of 10 and then I started high school straight away like the next day after I got diagnosed so a lot of my childhood revolved around being ridiculed for my size mainly my height rather than my weight so I've grown up being you know people will call it bullying but to me it was just I, I didn't feel like I ever got bullied in my life because I've always had a, a big mouth I can always give it back as hard as I've received it or even harder in fact so I started high school in 2001, the same year I got diagnosed with Crohn's disease. And imagine this, I used to have little girls who were younger and older than me come up to me while I was just walking through school saying, oh, you're a midget, aren't you? Look at you. And from my point of view, I'm thinking, well, I don't know you, I'm just walking through the school. So if anyone ever gave me any crap, I had to give it back to them. I remember one instant where this girl she must have been a sixth former when I was in like year seven or eight. And she goes, oh, look at you, you little midget. I said, oh, look at you, mum, the little slug. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and that was just how I was. You know, people might, when people get ridiculed in that respect, it really hurts them deep down. And it has a, a tremendous impact on the mental health. Whereas me, I always had a big gob in that respect. And I'm so glad I was such a cheeky child because that's what got me through childhood because... That was a regular thing. I had so many people just comment on my stature throughout my life. I still get it now. I'm a 30-year-old man, and I still get people who don't know me show me the ultimate disrespect. And for me, respect is everything. If I ever get disrespected, you'll know about it. And the fact that I've been disrespected all my life is um, it's impacted me in a big way because it's left me with this permanent chip on my shoulder. And the fact that you know, I'm always proving myself, proving everything to myself, not to anybody else, because I don't actually care in that respect. And so from a childhood point of view, it's been difficult because of the fact that 
people, you know, think of it from a society point of view. It's a taboo. If someone was obese, if someone was a different race or colour or gender, it's, you know, if you said anything about any of them traits, you know, you get ridiculed yourself. Oh, you can't say that. You can't say that person's fat. You can't say that person's, you know, homosexual. But when it comes to someone of small stature, there's no rules. There's no taboos. So I would get ridiculed from the likes of, say, someone who has so many prejudices, you know, labelled as prejudice. Say if someone was homosexual and obese and and maybe a different race, and they will say to me, you're tiny, aren't you? Like, why didn't you put some high heels on? I get these stupid comments. And I, I would think, wait a second, what gives you the right to say this to me when I've got like a list of things I can say to you, but I'm not that kind of person. But if you're going to give it to me, I'll give it back even harder, like I said, because if you're going to try and fight with me verbally, you just get annihilated. And I, But now I'm a 30-year-old man. I'm very calm, I'm respectful and kind. But there's also that side of me where, you know, I'm not so nice because I've been hardened as a kid. So when we talk about my later life with my Crohn's, you'll understand why my mental strength is so strong is the fact that I've been ridiculed from every man and his dog from such a young age for like at least 20 years. So from a childhood point of view, I actually had a really good childhood on the other side of the coin because I was- Sorry, just a quick one on that. So- Yeah. Clearly, obviously, since you were since you were a child, um, you had these kind of things thrown at you. What made it different? What what made you different, as in the way you handled it? Because clearly, the way you're telling me, the way that I'm hearing it from you now, the way you're handling it is, if somebody said something, you'd just give it straight back to them, if not worse. Um, but did it affect you? it must have affected you in some kind of way for because you mentioned that you feel like sometimes you you feel like you've got a chip on your shoulder i would say consciously it had no impact whatsoever because once i give it back to him that's done it's an, now I move on to the next person who's going to talk out the out their ass to me then they'll get dealt with and i move on to the next person so consciously it made no difference subconsciously it may have in the respect that you know, I've been, I've had these hardships in terms of being put down, being feel, you know, I'm, literally I'm a small person, but I've been made to feel small, I've been made to feel uh, lesser than other people because, you know, they're six inches taller than me or a foot taller. So in that respect, I think it's had a big impact on my future. It's not like I've got a complex, I'm far from it. But the fact is that I've always hated the fact that people would think they're better than me based on my size. And, you know, fast forward to now where I'm in life and what I've accomplished, things are completely different. People now look up to me and have the ultimate respect for me for what I've done. But growing up, it was a complete opposite. And again, going back to the topic of respect, respect has always been a big deal to me. And the fact that I've been disrespected for a big chunk of my life, at least two thirds of it, um, I would say, again, subconsciously, it has impacted me in a big way. Okay. Okay. Um... So you mentioned that you were diagnosed with Crohn's disease at the age of, was it 10 or 11? So it was 10 when I got diagnosed. Yeah. In, it was July. No, it was, no, I lied. It was 11. It wasn't 10. Yeah. I went to the doctors when I was 10 because what happened was I was always, again, I was small in stature and I was skinny and, I, and short. I went to the doctors and we were like, what's going on? 
And then it turns out I had Crohn's disease, which was relatively unknown in 2001. And uh, it was the day before I started high school, in fact, because I remember this clearly, because the first thing I did was when I went to start high school was jumped on the computers. Bear in mind, in 2001, internet was just started to boom as well. So there was no information on Crohn's disease. No one knew what it was. The doctors didn't know what it was. And it was very, very limited in that respect. And was that something, was there a reason why you went to the doctor? Or was it just a case of you, 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 your family thought there's something not right here because you're not sort of, I don't know, growing in a certain yeah, way? Well, or, that's, yeah, that's basically it. I didn't have any symptoms of the Crohn's disease that I le- developed later on as I got older. At that point, it was literally, I was fine. I felt like I was healthy. It was just the fact that I was just a lot smaller than everybody else my age. Uh, which prompted me and my parents to say, actually, let's go get him checked out. And that's when they found out I've got Crohn's disease. And what Crohn's disease is, your body uh, fails to absorb nutrients as well as they should. So I could eat and eat and eat, but I'm not growing. I'm not absorbing the nutrients. So it's redundant in that respect. And that's what was, and that's not even a side effect of Crohn's disease. That was just like a side effect of a side effect. You know, stunted growth is not a side effect. It's just the fact that I got it at such a young age it really impacted me in, in that respect. So, yeah. So when you found out you got Crohn's disease, did you sort of understand what it was? I know, I know you said you just jumped on online and you were just trying to find out what the hell it is all about. But as a, what, 11-year-old kid, I just, how the hell do you comprehend that? How the hell do you think to yourself, you know, it's mental, like, I can't believe you actually even jumped on, on onto the internet at the age of 11 to find out what the hell is going on um, with this. So, Well, when I first found out and there was like limited information, it was I wasn't overwhelmed because I didn't know what Crohn's disease was and no one else did. I couldn't speak to anyone because not even the doctors were, weren't 100% sure back then. They kind of knew very high level stuff. And... You know, I used to speak to my friends at that time and they didn't understand and I'd research them, but I'd say, look at this. And they were just like, so I had no real support in that respect. So then I kind of just thought, I'll just get on with it. I've got this Crohn's disease. It's incurable. There's not much I can do with, about it. So life goes on again. And that's how I treated it. I just kind of got on with my life. I didn't think, oh, I've got Crohn's disease. Therefore, I should feel sorry for myself. I was like, I've got other things to worry about at this point. I've just started high school. That's daunting in itself. And the fact that I started high school and I get ridiculed from every man and his dog in that school, it was the Crohn's disease was kind of like the bottom of my list of worries at that point in life. Thing I do now is I do it for myself and myself alone and obviously my family. But the fact is, what I've done for myself to prove everything for myself is I've been a byproduct of helping so many other people because I'm at a point in my life where I've helped. I would say it's probably in the thousands of people now around the world that I've actually, I've inspired, I've helped, they've healed based off advice I've given them or I've coached them to a point where they're a much better place, not just from a gut point of view or Crohn's disease or colitis, but mentally, because a big part of healing any ailment is mental. So when it came to, we'll talk about this later on in this podcast, but just to briefly talk about it, what I went through in my childhood years and high school years really hardened me even further when it came to my health, when it deteriorated once I reached my 20s. So let's talk about your 20s. So let's just take a step back because I've always been a skinny kid. 
you know, if, in fact, you know, if anyone said anything about my height, a lot of people would say in a jokey way, like if I never met them before, which people were really open about that, like, oh, you're small, that yeah. But if they said it in like a, a banter way, it didn't really bother me too much. But if they said it in a way that they were putting me down, then that was a different story. And, mm. and then again, verbally, they'll just get annihilated. So, but the thing with me was because of Crohn's disease, I couldn't put any weight on. I would eat and eat and eat, and I was always skinny. I would uh, work out. I got introduced to the gym when I was 13. I actually joined my first gym when I was 14. And then between like 14 and 17, I would work out on and off. And I wasn't putting any weight on. And But then I was reading like bodybuilding magazines and encyclopedias. There was nothing online back then. And you didn't really use a computer, literally. And there was no real gyms. You had your council leisure centre gyms and you had the backstreet gyms with the meatheads. So, Flex, Flex, remember Flex magazine? Yes, I do remember Flex magazine. I remember Flex magazine. I've probably got some random magazine <laughs> like, in the loft somewhere. Um, so, so for me, the hardest bit was the weight, not the, my height. So if someone said something about my weight, that would affect me more. And I'm like, I, hate, I hated being skinny, I'll be honest. And I've always... I had this mindset, like, I just want to get bigger, I want to get stronger, because if I'm not going to get taller, I want to physically feel good. Um, so when it- Manny, so just a quick one on that, actually. Yeah. So I, I resonate with that quite a bit myself. So when I was at high school and so on and so forth, in my younger years, I was very light and I was very skinny. Um, and my dad's a big powerlifter, like a heavyweight powerlifter. And I used to look at him and just think, fucking hell look at the size of him would I ever get to that size and you know you again very similar to you look at things how can I get bigger and eat 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 but nothing was fucking happening um but with me it was probably just metabolism or whatever it was um but I totally get where you're coming from there totally get where you're coming from especially when you when you're a skinny kid so if there's any skinny kids out there that are you know feeling down or anything like that or do you know what it just takes time it takes time and you just need to put the effort in Absolutely, I 100% agree. It's consistency and it's that desire to get to, to reach your goals. So for you and I, we've been training consistently for well over a decade. Yeah. And that's because we've been consistent all them years. Oh, bloody hell, yeah, you, about- yeah, you make me feel old now. More than a decade <laughs> worth of... <laughs> <laughs> it sounds a bit more like extreme. Like, yeah, it does, yeah. For- <laughs> yeah. Uh, and another thing was like, because my friends were into training uh, in our late teens, 16, 17. And I always remembered they could bench 60 kilos. It's like, wow, that's a big milestone at that age to bench one plate, 60 kilo. And I was just struggling with 40. And I'm thinking, I can't keep up with my friends. They're doing 60, I'm doing 40. And then by the time I could reach 60, they've moved on to 80 kilo. And I'm like, it's just constant catching up. And then I could reach 80, but then probably 99% of my friends have stopped training. They've, they've got over it, you know, a couple of years have gone by. I just continued. And there's a lot of my friends that I looked up to, and I still look up to a lot of my friends in this respect. Um, but I used to admire them because they were so physically strong and they looked great. And I was like, I want to be stronger than my friends, these guys. And now fast forward probably 12 years later, I can outlift all of them. But it took me... 12 years to do but that it's consistency can, you're cracking yeah, on yeah yeah exactly and bear in mind these guys are heavyweights i'm yeah. a featherweight i weigh 60 kilo on a good day 
which is roughly about nine stone something. Um, so going back to that was going back to my twenties. That oh no, sorry, I'm skipping ahead. So nineteen, <laughs> so nineteen years old is when uh, the first commercial gym opened up and that revolution started in the UK, where I think it was Pure Gym. Okay. As soon as that first Pure Gym opened in two thousand nine. I went straight there, and then from the age of 19, it was just be, I never looked back. The only time I've looked back now is to see how far I've come. And I've just trained since the age of 19, now I'm 30, consistently. And for me, is you know, people talk about lifestyle. I was like, that's bullshit. It's not a lifestyle, it's life. It's part of your routine. This is what you get up and do. Agreed. You, know, you work, you do your graft and all the your personal stuff, but working out five times a, a week that's part of my big part of my life so at 19 I had this desire now like I want to put some weight on bear in mind at 19 years old and my Crohn's disease was pretty bad at this point I weighed 39 kilo and there was nothing wrong with me I just weighed 39 kilo which was six stone so imagine weighing six stone at 19 years old and that was just standard and I've got pictures of that on my Instagram in fact was there any um at that point did so you're saying there weren't no kind of symptoms or issues that you were dealing with or was it just something that was just going on in your body but it wasn't affecting you effectively so from well, the age so when i got diagnosed at 11 there was nothing by the time i got to like 13 to 19 i was having regular hospital checkups i was going every six weeks for all them years i was on 16 tablets a day at its peak and for i was on one tablet for over 10 years and then it got to the point where I was like, I'm sure these medic- this medication is making me feel worse. And I stopped taking them. And I used to get told off religiously by doctors. Uh, but I was like, I'm not taking them because it makes me feel far worse than if I did, uh, did take them. So um, it turned out one of the medications that they used to force me to have for 10 years, they go, oh, it doesn't do anything for Crohn's disease. In fact, it's beneficial for colitis. So I said, for 10 years, you made me take this medication and you just discovered it's irrelevant. So I was treated like a guinea pig, which is why to this day, I'm really against medication. It has its place, don't get me wrong. But generally speaking, it, it can be avoided. And plus, I was clearly misinformed and I've just been poisoned with irrelevant medication for 10 years. So all this, all my life up to 26, 27, I was on medication. So by 19... Um, I was on a lot of heavy medication. Not many people knew I had Crohn's disease. I was never open about it because I didn't let it define me. It wasn't a big part of my life. I wouldn't let it be a big part of my life. Um, but I was in hospital very regularly. I, I basically grew up in the hospital because I spent so much time there, in and out check-ins or colonoscopies or spending three days there. So I was really adamant by the time 19, I need to just put some weight on. I need to get stronger. I need to get fitter. And then... Throughout my 20s, my Crohn's wasn't the best. It was getting worse, especially when I started university and working life. A big part of, uh, bear in mind, my main symptoms were loss of appetite. So I was scared to eat food because if I'd eat, it would go straight out and I'd run to the toilet. So I would very, like, I wouldn't eat that much or big meals at all. And the fact that um, I always suffered from weight loss as well. So I had really poor appetite, weight loss and diarrhea, so which kept me skinny for a big bulk of my life. And I didn't know about healing. I didn't know what to do. I was on this medication. I just, I kind of just continued with my, my poor diet 
and bad lifestyle habits because that's just kind of how I was grown up and it was just a part of like the Western culture, I'd say. And then when I reached my 20s, my health never got any better. So I started working and then stress came into play because I'm very level-headed. Generally speaking, I'm very, it takes a lot for me to get stressed. Like it's very rare for me to get stressed, even to this day. Um, but when I did get stressed, I used to have really bad flare-ups where, where I had severe stomach cramps, like very, very painful stomach cramps that would last a long time. And that had happened, bear in mind, from the age of 13 till 27. So from my 20s, my Crohn's was actually very severe, but I just kind of got on with things and tried to, I kind of just ignored it, is the short answer. Uh, just a quick one on that. So you mentioned about your poor diet with regards to the community and so on and so forth. Um, with regards to, let's say, the wider family and friends, what were their sort of, did they sort of say anything or what was their sort of? Yeah, I'll tell you what I said. I can tell you exactly what I said. So my dad was always like, oh, we need to fatten you up. We need to fatten you up. No one knows about health in my family, generally speaking, especially back then. I think it's a lot different now. But going back 10, 15, 20 years, it was literally, oh, you need to fatten up. You need to grow. So everyone used to say, oh, drink milk. So from a young the age, standard. Oh, you need, that's the standard, yeah. yeah. yeah Especially yeah, yeah. in the Apra yeah. family. Get, get the like, milk. Oh, drink, drink milk, it'll make you big and strong. So I drink litres and litres of milk as a kid. And now, in hindsight, I think that was a big contributing factor to my Crohn's, drinking so much lactose, lactose. and dairy. Yeah. Um, so I've probably got a lot of family members to blame for my ill health. Were, were almonds <laughs> involved? Did they say anything about almonds? Almonds are usually one as well. Yeah, they did actually. Oh, yeah, milk, badam. Badam, butter, you know, <laughs> the good old That's it. traditional stuff. <laughs> I tell you a quote from my, he was a Crohn's disease specialist that I used to see, and he was a really nice guy. I liked him a lot as a doctor from my childhood. And he said, in front of my dad as well, when I went to an appointment, or oh, feed him bacon and biscuits. That was his nutritional advice from a, a gut specialist. So that got stuck in my dad's head. So he would, was obsessed with just feeding me all this food, didn't matter what it was. Obviously now, at this point in my life, I'm not surprised my bowel perforated at 26 years old because I was just getting crippled for so many years by this really shit advice and poor diet because it was, that's what I was advised. And this is what everyone else is thinking is a good idea. So I would eat a lot of shit. My diet used to be from a young age to my mid-20s Pizza, doner kebab, McDonald's, KFC, sweets, chocolate, Coca-Cola, any fizzy drinks. And that was standard. It was rare for me to eat like veg or salads or fruit. Like that wasn't even, it was non-existent. It's a, the polar opposite to what I consume now, which is actually quite bizarre when I think about it. Because I cringe when I look at a lot of them things because I know how, to me, the poison. And I want other people to realize how poisonous a lot of this stuff is and quick so, one on that quick one on that so yeah. um as a gut health coach i think it's quite important to just ask you this question as well and i'm sure you've probably had so many people asking you so it's not unknown knowledge that asians and the diet is not the greatest Absolutely. so what would you say to people that follow this diet or indulge in this diet you know what can we what can what can these people kind of do 
speak to me. Yeah, you come to me. <laughs> the short answer is, <laughs> if you want to get better or if you realise, the thing is, I've actually got one client that has no gut issues whatsoever, but she just wants a better lifestyle. She wants a better health. She's got two young children and she's just only focused on just having a better future. She's, she's got no health problems. And we need more people like that in the world where prevention is better than the cure. Because what a lot of people do is they get ill of whatever ailment or disease or even cancer. And then they panic and then they're like, oh, I want to get better. I want to cure myself. I want to do this, that. And they would just give me anything. Whereas you should be preventing all of this throughout your life by having the right lifestyle habits, managing your stress, eating the right nutrition, having herbs. There's so much that goes into it. But generally speaking, especially from a Sikh Indian or Asian community, we kind of just get on with life, do what we want. Like, oh, life's too short. I'll consume whatever I want. And then when shit hits the fan, it's like, oh, now what do I do? You're trading your... Before, before is a quote, actually, that really stuck with me. Is either make time for your wellness now or you'll be forced to make time for your illness in the future. And it's absolutely true. And that, 100%, 100%. that's your example of that. Because when I was at that life or death situation, which we'll come to, it was a case of like, now what do I do? I'm like, I want to get better. I need to, whereas if I just learned, you know, a lot earlier in my life, bear in mind, I had really fucking shit advice all my life anyway. <laughs> um, so going back to say an Asian community and their diet, the answer is literally come speak to me and that is the best advice they'll ever receive because all I need to do is just show you my before picture and my after picture and pictures speak a thousand words because I'm the real deal. And the fact is, if you look at that, you just think, well, how did he put his weight on? He must have the mental strength. His diet must be amazing. There's so many factors. You, you, All these questions will come to your mind. Another thing I'd say to him, anything they consume read the packets and understand why they eat anything question this is a life lesson in fact question everything everything because um, a lot of people said to me oh i eat quite well i'm quite healthy oh what do you eat and then they start listening i was like why do you think you eat healthy oh because uh, it's high in protein or oh, it's got carbs why is protein healthy oh, i don't know it builds muscle do you work out no why do you think you need protein and then it goes down this rabbit hole because I don't know, they maybe see something or read something and they only know this very high level thing, but they don't know the ins and outs. A very quick one is, you know, if you read a packet, uh, the ingredients in the packet, sorry, and you're like, if you don't, can't pronounce a word or that chemical or you don't know what it is, rule of thumb is your body doesn't know what it is. So if it's like mono, hydro, some, something or other. And because it's in food, we think it's safe because it must have gone through the... Um, the FDA are some sort of food standard agency. But in reality, a lot of these come with warnings. And I'll give you an example, in fact. In the American a tree called the Twinkies. I don't know if you heard of Twinkies. I've heard of Twinkies. We've heard of Twinkies. Everyone's heard of Twinkies. Yeah. Yeah. Well, some people haven't. And I always say, I try to describe it to them. But Twinkies is like, it's actually a kid's tree, in fact, because the character on it is a little uh, cartoon character of a, a Twinkie in a cowboy hat. They usually have like uh, I've seen it in like Die Hard and stuff like that, where they sort of say the the, the coppers are always eating Twinkies. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's <laughs> in American films, with yeah, um, yeah. police officers eating yeah. them as a snack, donuts and Twinkies, donuts and Twinkies. Yeah, and so what I did was 
I got the packet and I read the, and it literally had a warning and it's a kid's treat, bear in mind. It said, may cause adverse effects in children. And I thought, what kind of warning is this? So I read, um, and it referenced an E number and it's called E129. And I was like, okay, E129. And E219 is, yeah, E129, sorry. Straight away, it, it's a carcinogenic. And anyone who knows what a carcinogenic is, it causes cancer. Carcinogenic is found in uh, cigarettes. It's found in red meats. And if you look at, read the World Health Organization website, carcinogenic causes cancer and it causes attention deficit disorders in kids. So it had this warning on the back, but because it's got a warning, it's like, oh yeah, it's fine. We kind of told you we're poisoning you. And now it's up to you to kind of deal with that on yourself. We'll put a nice picture of a cowboy on there and make it look pretty at the front. Yeah, absolutely. And you're, you know, if, if you buy and, it, you buy it. We, we've covered our back, basically, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it breaks my heart, actually, because we're literally getting poisoned. We're getting told we're poisoned at times, and we kind of just accept it. Because another example is, do you know them uh, drink cartons that you get as a kid where you pierce the straw through the top? And yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you get like blue, the blue ones and the cola flavours and strawberry and stuff. So I was at a, a kid's party. Like it was one of my friend's kid's parties. And me being me, I started reading reading all the labels. And them drinks that, bear in mind, I consumed a lot of them as a kid as well. It had that exact same warning and that exact same E number in them drinks. I'm looking around this whole place and there's all these little kids running around with them in the hands. And it really did break my heart. I was like, and then I went to my friend and I told him and he's like, he kind of was like, it is what it is. And I was like, it is what it is. All right, you want to poison all these kids? All right, Philly Boots. Because just read the fucking labels of everything. Don't look at the calorie content. Look at the chemical content of everything that you buy and consume. And then you can prevent a lot of things. My list is coming through to you very soon. Probably just leave it in the next five minutes or so. <laughs> no, but it's a really, really important point that you're making. And, I'd, and and there's not enough being said or enough being talked about this. And I know we'll, we'll go on to it a bit later on about what you do um, with your gut health coaching, but there needs to be more done. There needs to be more people understanding that, you know, you can't just crack on and just abuse your body, in fact with all sorts yeah, of crap absolutely. on that topic right and, and this is one thing that fucking pisses me off is oh everything's okay in moderation that is a myth and it's fucking bullshit because i'm sick of hearing that oh yeah can you know like people bodybuilders or people train or weight loss or whatever your goal is you have your five days six days of eating well and then you have your cheat day oh i can have that i've, I've deserved it are you a dog Oh, he has a little treat. He, he, he oh, I reward myself. It's like, oh, yeah. Just, yeah. No, fuck that shit. Because why? I tell you why moderation is, is not a good thing. Say so you've eaten fantastic all week. You've eaten your greens and your veg and you've had, you've had alkaline foods and a plant-based kind of diet. But then you have, I don't know, KFC or some doner kebab. You've literally just unwound that whole week. It's not like, oh, I've just had one bad meal. Therefore, I can just run it, uh, do some cardio and burn it off. The impact on your health is literally you just destroyed all your hard work. Uh, that's more true when it comes to sugar. So if you have a, an anti-inflammatory diet, which is what I promote through my gut health coaching plans, and it's really important, not just from a gut point of view, but inflammation 
is in the liver and the joints and various parts of the body is so if you have an anti-inflammatory diet all week and then you start having pro pro-inflammatory foods which is foods with sugar for example so if you went and said oh i'll have um, a cheesecake or some biscuits it's not like i've reduced all that inflammation now i've just added something that causes inflammation therefore oh no but i've had a week's worth of anti-inflammatory stuff therefore it's going to control it once you just have that one pro-inflammatory thing it, it causes inflammation instantly so there's no moderation you can't especially from a gut healing point of view you can't say oh well i like a bit of this that and the other i understand people have preferences and taste and it's completely fine and we can work around things like that but you have to have be mindful of the fact that if you want to heal you just there's no moderation it's either you will adapt and evolve in your habits or you just carry on how you are and then you know you'll know about the effects in the future and it depends how disciplined people are clearly if you you're looking forward to having a moderated moderation in your diet you're not disciplined enough and you know people who exercise for example bodybuilders is a good example you know they train very hard and the diet's on point and then after a show they'll have donuts and you know crispy cream and all the rest of it which is fine you know but they're seeing it is like now I can finally eat this stuff but why it's like they're forcing themselves to have this diet which is actually really good for them and therefore like they were just forcing it rather than letting it be a natural thing where it's like actually I'm enjoying this I don't need a treat after a show or anything like that it's more like oh I want to look great so I have to eat like this not thinking about from a health point this is a universal point by the way so on the point of moderation in my opinion i think it's bullshit can i drink beer what's that can i drink beer you can do whatever you want <laughs> but to the point of moderation you know <laughs> but the thing is with beer you you feel the effects the next day anyway yeah, so you know what's right. going on yeah you know you instantly know that there's a problem you know yeah. hangover is not a good thing no it's not it's not it's not right okay so um, going back to your 20s now, late 20s, is it late 20s, early 20s? When, yeah, about mid-20s. About mid-20s, isn't it? Okay, so um, you're going through the point where you're still very low in weight, you're 39 kilos, but it's not really affecting you. You're, you're still getting on with what you're doing. Talk yeah, to me about yeah. Christmas Day. 2016 absolutely so by the time i got to my mid-20s i was probably about 47 48 kilo at this point so upon 10 11 kilos since i was 19 so my Crohn's disease got to its worst because i lost so much weight naturally and i, I acknowledged it because i saw a picture in december of that uh, in 2016 where i went out for me with my sister and my mum and I was like, why do I look so skinny? I need to get back in the gym. But at that point, I've just bought my first house in 2016. So I was just focused on that. And I was there decorating it. For, I spent like 14 hours a day just by myself doing the house. I wasn't eating properly and my stress levels were pretty high. And so when it came to Christmas Day in 2016, I woke up, I had pain in my stomach. Oh, natural Crohn's flaring up. At that point, I've had it for so long, like any pain in my stomach is like, oh, just a Crohn's flare up, it's no big deal. And then this pain wasn't going. 
um, bear in mind, I didn't know about how to kind of reduce this pain. So I was having like yoga, thinking, oh yeah, that might cool it down and nothing was happening. And it was really, really killing me. And it was just me and my sister on Christmas day, actually that year. And what happened was we ended up having Christmas dinner. The pain wasn't going away. I thought, oh, maybe I just need to eat. It wasn't helping at all. And then I had nothing to do. So I went to the house that I bought. I was like, oh, I started ripping up carpet. And my pain was so excruciating. I was like on the verge of tears. So I kind of just quickly locked up and I started driving home. As I was driving home, I mean, it, the pain was getting so severe. Like I couldn't physically drive. Like I was literally going to pass out. Managed to get home and I just sat on my sofa and I couldn't move. And my phone was just like just a further than the arm's length away and my sister was somewhere in the house and I was trying to reach it and I rang her and bear in mind I'm the last person to go to the hospital I can um my tolerance to pain is very 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 high and I knew something was wrong so I managed to ring her and I said come downstairs I need some help she took one look at me and she goes we need to ring the hospital like there's something wrong we need to take it a &E. So ambulance came, they gave me gas and air and it wasn't doing anything. This pain, how I can describe this pain in my stomach was someone shot me in the stomach and then poured battery acid on top for good measure. It was horrendous. Went to the hospital, they gave me morphine, they were pumping me with morphine and morphine is such a powerful sedative. It did nothing for the pain, absolutely nothing. And it just made me loopy and my mind was all over the place. But from a pain point of view, I was, I spent 12 hours in A&E laying on this bed in excruciating pain, getting pumped with morphine, which did fuck all, which tells you the, the level of pain I was going through, if morphine isn't going to do anything. And then eventually I got checked and we did, uh, they did CT scans, did x-ray, and they couldn't really see anything. So they kept me in, did a few more tests. And I'll tell you one thing, right? They would come see me every morning. I spent five days in this hospital. I, I didn't once go to the toilet at all. I didn't, I could just barely get out of bed. I laid on my back for five days in this hospital, deteriorating. All I had had was a drip just to give me fluids. And that was it. I had no food for five days. And uh, doctors, what they would come and sit and push my stomach. Oh, did this hurt, Manny? This hurt. And I'm like, no, no. No, it doesn't. Uh, no, no. And it's like, are you sure? Because it looks like you're in pain. I'm like, no, no, no. It's it's fine. I was just trying to brush it off, and I just wanted to go home. Yeah, was that the reason why you're trying to brush it off? Because you just wanted to go home. Yes. Yeah. I just literally wanted this to be over. I wanted to go home, and by the time it came to the fifth day of laying on my back in excruciating pain, not eating not being able to go to the toilet because I physically couldn't, I didn't need to, I couldn't get out of that bed. I think I got out of that bed once. Oh, I tell you exactly what happened. My temperature was so high that they were like, you got an infection. So I know to cool your body temperature down, you kind of want your feet in cold water. So what I did was with the little, little, little strength I had in my body, I had a private room because I was quarantined. I went to the shower and I managed to put it on my cold feet. I opened the windows, all of them, and I was asleep um, in the freezing ice cold to try and bring my body temperature down. And I remember nurses that were coming to check my temperature every two hours and do um, like blood tests as well. 
They're like, oh, it's freezing in here. They will leave, come back with a fleece, and then check my temperature because I left it that cold. And my body temperature wasn't coming down at all. It was still, I think it was like 38, 39 degrees, which is clearly, especially from a COVID point of view, if your temperature is that high, it's worrying. So Very worrying. The context. <laughs> um, and it didn't do anything. And that was the only time I got out of bed. So the fifth day of laying on my back after Christmas, bear in mind, no one knew I was in hospital. Only my sister knew. Uh, my mum was on holiday and my dad was away. So I said to my sister, don't tell anyone, don't tell them, because I wanted them to come back. So my mum comes straight back from the airport and then she finds out, oh, I'm basically in hospital laying on my back. And I've been there for five days and no one's told them. Um, so doctors came, right? And they said, right, we've reviewed your scans. And it turns out you've got a significant bowel perforation. So I was like, a significant bowel perforation? You've just been prodding my stomach and you're telling me is it's split my intestines. Maybe it's just like so many things were going through my head. Maybe if you like, didn't fucking prod it, it might, have, might have fucking help. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. Maybe they pierced a hole in it, I don't know. So they said... What we're going to have to do, Manny, is we're going to have to perform emergency surgery. And what we're going to have to do is, best case scenario, we can do keyhole surgery, but most likely we'll have to cut you open, chop out the, the perforated part and give you an ileostomy bag. And during this whole process, from start to finish of this whole ordeal, I cried twice. And the first time I cried was when I had no choice but to have the ileostomy bag and I cried my eyes out because I spoke to every single person I could ask. I got the whole big picture from the nutritionist point of view. Then I spoke to a surgeon. Then I spoke to the general doctor. I spoke to a nurse. I spoke to an IBD specialist all in this one day and all gave me their own viewpoints. And I painted this whole picture. But the conclusion was, you've got to have this aliasmi bag. It's either you have it or you'll die. And I was like, you think I'm going to die? My attitude is like, I'm money fucking Torah. You think I'm going to die? Right, okay. And, but it was so much, to, it was overwhelming at the same time. And uh, my friends came to visit me and I'm a, I've got a lot of pride. I don't want people to see me upset. And I walked in as soon as I got that news where I, I literally, the sixth person came at the end of the day, tried to convince me to have this surgery. I'm bawling my eyes out um, and signed the, the, basically the consent form. And fast forward, I had the aliostomy surgery. And they said to me what it was, because when it split, all my waste in my gut leaked through the, my internal organs, so to speak. So I've got like shit, literal shit leaking everywhere. So they had to clean all that up, cut out one foot of my intestine. But because I was so weak and frail at this point, if they reattached it, it would have just fallen apart. So they had to give me an alistomy bag, which means I just defecate and shit into a bag. So I stick a bag onto my gut. My intestine is pierced through the skin of my stomach so I could physically see it and I could physically see all the waste going into it so I woke up the next day I had 30 stitches that looked like a zip down my stomach and I was like what the fuck I had this bag and it's full of green bile I'm scared I've got this morphine mask where I press the button and it'll keep giving me morphine and I was in a ward bear man I was 26 at the time and everyone the youngest person was in his early 60s the oldest person was in his 90s we all had the same surgery and being in that ward was scary because it went into the new year and every new year, when it comes to new year, I always go to the Godwara 
Sikh temple. I always go. And this year, I'm, it's midnight, and I'm looking at the ceiling, and it's going into 2017. I'm in tremendous pain from the surgery. And I'm just hearing the wailing of the room. All these old men, uh, like, far worse than I am. And they're, all I hear is, ooh, ah, like screams and shrieks. And I'm, like, ho holding my ears, like, I don't want to hear this. Because it, it was just, it broke my heart to hear them in that pain. Because I'm thinking you're wailing like what I'm feeling on the inside. And I was going to say, so, yeah, so what, where were you at mentally? I can't even imagine, but where were you at mentally? What were you, what were your thoughts? Because from talking to you right the way through up until this now, you come across as a very strong person and strong-minded. But was this point, did you feel... Did you feel, I don't know, well, how did you feel? Just how did you feel? I'll tell you one thing, I never felt defeated because that's not even in my vocabulary, defeat, to be honest. I felt, the thing what was difficult to consume was there was no end goal. It's not like, oh, we can do this reversal in six months or you'll be, we know by six months or a year that you'll be better. There was literally, there's no idea. This was just never ending. So well, I began living my day not knowing when this nightmare was going to end. And it was just, they kind of said uh, after a week, oh, if you can get your weight up to um, 50 kilo and your Crohn's disease in remission, then we'll consider reversing your aliostomy bag, which is basically reattaching intestines so you no longer have a bag. But I said to him, but I've never, I weighed 50 kilo at that point in my life once. And that was when I was training intensely to the point where I managed, I was like, there's no way I can do this with a bag and I can't train physically. And to me, it was like, wait a second. Again, I'm money fucking torrent. All right, you want to test me? I'll show you how it's fucking done. Well, now fast forward to where we are now. I've fucking pissed all over that and I've proved myself to. <laughs> yeah, of course you did. Of course you did. But at that time, when you're in that hospital bed and I went from, I dropped 16 kilo of body weight. And bear in mind, I had hardly any weight on me to begin with. Again, if you see the pictures on my Instagram, you can see the clear difference in my body weight shift. And so mentally, I was more scared. as like, well, I didn't know when the end was coming. It was just like, I had to live my day, day by day and kind of deal with it in that respect. And I spent two weeks in that hospital. Another thing is they wouldn't let me leave a post-surgery until I was producing less than a litre of basically waste in my bag. And I kept producing so much waste. It was like well over a litre to the point where it's like, oh, you can go tomorrow. Oh, wait a second. You have, you're releasing too much fluid. Next day, and it went on for about four or five days and I got sick of it. So my notes were at the bottom of the bed. They put like his little folder. So what I did one day, I took it out. I started crossing off what they put and I dropped, I slightly wrote less than a litre worth of fluid. So when the doctor came, he was like, oh, actually, money, it seems like um, you can go. And I was like, oh, thanks. And so, which is a, a very sly move. But, <laughs> a very sly move. But you want but to get the hell out necessary. of there, didn't you? Yeah, you just need to get, you want yeah, to get was, the hell out, didn't I you? I just wanted to go home. Simple as, I just really wanted to go home. And I remember leaving that hospital and I, I spent two weeks in total at that point, uh, pre and post-surgery. And where the hospital is, not the most 
affluent area, shall we say. And I was just so happy to see daylight and not just see a hospital ward because I wasn't, I couldn't go outside, physically couldn't go outside. I couldn't walk. I could walk maybe five steps, literally. And it was just difficult. So I'm in shock and awe. I'm like, wow, look, at all. I can see trees and I can see buildings. I can see all these people. It's like, it's like being like a newborn child. It was just, to me, it was very heartwarming and I was excited just to see the world again. But kind of, but at the same time, I was like, I'm going back into the world in this destroyed state. Like I'm a shell of what I used to be. And I was like, well, I've got some rebuilding to do. I've, I was like, I've got some work to really do. And then from that point on, bear in mind, I could, my mum was not working. She was 24-hour care for my mum. Uh, I couldn't dress myself. I couldn't cook. I was lost all independence. I couldn't wash myself. It was just, I can't describe how difficult life was with that bag. Um, and what was happening was, uh, in the background, because I can only just sit in one place, I couldn't physically move. I'll just read and I'll sit there and read and read and read about gut health. I would read about minerals and vitamins. What's wh Why do our bodies need it? How can I heal as fast as I can? And I'll just consume so many studies and articles and just learn and learn about the body and the gut to the point where I know my shit inside and out, and which has led me to becoming a gut health coach fast forward four years because I've proven it on myself and I've proven it on so many other people who have actually healed through my methods. But it started from the point where I was like, I'm a lost cause. And the fact is I was in search for someone who's been in my shoes and came up the other side. And you know what? All my searching, I found no one, every single person who had a bag or went through a, some people who are, bear in mind a bowel perforation it's far more common that you die from a bowel perforation so i was very 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 fortunate that i survived bear in mind i had a bowel perforation and i was there for five days people die within half an hour hour within a day i spent five days on my fucking back with a significant bowel fucking perforation so i'm very lucky which told me like well clearly there's bigger plans in my life i've just got to go through the worst test that I could ever... That's another point. When people go through hardship, they see, oh, why me? And they feel like, what have I done to deserve this? Whereas I actually kind of looked at myself and reflecting, I thought, all right, I've done some fucked up shit. I'll put my hands up to that. And things I'm not proud of. But at the same time, I was like, well, what I've done doesn't equal like nearly dying and having this happen to my life. That's how I kind of saw it. But I thought... And bear in mind, I'm a big believer in Siki and God and the universe. But like, looking up, like, you want to fucking test me? I'm going to pass this test. I'm going to make you proud. And I'm going to show you how it's done. Because I acknowledge that, right, this is a test. It's not like, oh, why me? And what? I didn't feel sorry for myself. Well, you can uh, go down that route, can't you? It depends on how you tackle it. Yes. You could have, you could have uh, by the sounds of things, you could have actually sat there and you could still be sitting there with the bag attached to you, couldn't you? Really? Oh, absolutely. If you if if you went down that route where you thought, oh, I can't believe this is happening to me, and you know, but you've got the mindset where you thought to yourself, no, I'm not going to let this happen. There's clearly a reason why I've come out the other end, and I've got a purpose here. Yeah, yeah, and that's, that's exactly it. Because it, it was super easy to kind of accept defeat. I'm, I'm at lower than rock bottom. I'm at the abyss of rock bottom at this point, and 
there was no point where I was like, I wanted to give up. I was like, right, I'm going to come back stronger, faster, harder, more intelligent. I'm going to be a new me. I'm going to be like an evolution. So when I come out of this, I'm going to be a brand new person, better than I was previously. And that was always my my goal. If I had ever had a goal, that was it. And so I would learn and learn and learn because that's all I could do. I could all I could do is read and study and just read and read and read because I couldn't physically do anything else besides get 24 hour care from mum and my sister when she wasn't working. It was difficult. It was difficult from a financial point of view. I was primarily making the most money in the house. That that's gone out the window. I'm on sick pay. You know, SSP is 80 quid a week or whatever it was. I couldn't even no wouldn't even cover jack shit. Mum's not working now, so that's two incomes missing. It was it was difficult as well in that side of things. It was it was so many different factors, not including the health side of things. But I'm not going to get into that too much. And all I cared about was just getting better. And I've been told right, I need to put on this weight. I need to um, put my crumbs in remission. Bear in mind, I was eating seven times a day with snacks in between. I just kept on eating and eating and eating. Uh, but I could physically see the food in, in my bag because I used to have a clear bag. So I could see like uh, blueberries, the skins floating around. I could see cucumber floating around, which made me understand the digestive system far more because I'm like, wait a second, why can I see undigested cucumber and lettuce and blueberry skins? Bear in mind where my ileostomy bag was it was probably after about 12 or 15 feet of intestine so that cucumbers made it's all it all that way and the blueberry and it's come out still intact which made me think wait these foods don't get digested well and that's not from a Crohn's disease point of view that's a universal thing so I started studying and reading about that and started to understand about the digestive system how food gets broken down and what causes inflammation in that respect and it was it was all of it was eye-opening and um did you have any you must have had some low points where you just thought where you got to a point where you're just thinking do you know what this isn't this isn't happening the weight's not going on or do you know what is there is there going to be an end to all of this where i can move forward and then you sort of think snap out of it and think do you know what no i know what i need to do that even when i want them very very low points that was never crossed my mind i tell you I mentioned I cried twice with this whole situation. And the second time was, touching on what you said, Bali, was I got a text from a really good friend of mine. He used to come see me. And at that time, I was I had some bad habits still because I'm still transitioning of breaking bad habits. I was still eating sweets while I had when I was at my low point of uh, the Alex to my bag. And I, for some reason, I got into drinking Tizer. Tizer is such an old school drink. That's old school. And, so I'm yeah. brewing it. I'm brew as well. I'm brew yeah. tizer, same sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. So he brought me a load of tizer and these sweets and a bodybuilding magazine, which I still have, by the way. And you know, I for me, he was always so many people. Bear in mind, I had so much support. I mean, so much support from everybody, and that was what really got me through it. And I got to give it to every single person. I still have. I owe my lifetime of gratitude to the, everyone who came to see me or message me or came to reach out or just help me in some fashion. And there's a lot of people who were really by my side through the whole process. And that was a big, big help in, uh, for me. And 
so he texted me one day and I remember I was in bed and I physically couldn't get out of bed. It was hard. I had to hold the bed frame to try and I didn't have the strength to get out of bed. And then my bed's a normal height, but I couldn't step out because I would just fall. So I had to get a, a, like a stool to kind of place my foot on that and then get out of bed because it was just a really hard time. It must take me 20 minutes just to get out of bed uh, by myself at that point. For a long time, that was. Uh, another thing was, Ali asked me back, it would burst and split in my sleep, and it's full of waste. So literal shit was in my bed constantly. I've ruined the sofas, I've ruined like car seats. It was just, it was awful. And um, so going back to what he messaged me, um, and he goes, the money I know, he's he's a strong motherfucker. You know, this is not going to get to him. He's, you know, you know yourself, like how strong you are. You're going to overcome this. And he, it was this really long, heartfelt message. And he was reminding me who the fuck I am because he knows who the fuck I am. And to me, I'm the fucking man. And I still have that attitude. It's not like I'm saying it in an arrogant way or I'm better than anyone else. It's just, you know, in a world where mental health's reaching epidemic levels and, you know, insecurities is really high and um, low self-esteem and all the rest of it is a, a big factor in people's lives. I'm the opposite. I'm like... I'm, I, I am a strong motherfucker, you're right. And when I read it, I just instantly started crying. I broke down. I'm laying in bed and I'm crying my eyes out. And I'm shouting for my mum. She's downstairs. I'm like, mum, mum. And then she's like, what's wrong? I just, that was the only time I wanted a hug. And she gave me a big hug and she started crying. And um, and that was, that was the second occasion I cried. And I never cried after that. Um. And I just got on with it. And it really, really, really touched me. And I deleted that message because it was really hard for me to read. And I really wish I kept it now. Like, to this day, I, would, I want to kind of look back at it, but I don't have it anymore. Um, and then what happened was, so it, it was a two-month period. I just deteriorated so badly to the point where I went from 50, 47, 48 kilo to 33 kilo in two months. So I lost a third of my body weight. Uh, after surgery right yeah that's post-surgery that's yeah, right post-surgery. so i went to the hospital i managed to like physically had to go to the hospital because no one would come see me and the uh, doctors and surgeons were there. there's a group of a team of like doctors and stuff in this room and this is how they phrased it to me they said if you lose 10 percent of your body weight we get a bit worried if you lose 20 percent of your body weight it's a red flag but they're like you've lost 27 percent of your body weight almost a third in two months so they're panicking and then I'm panicking. And that's when they said to me, right, we need you to put on 16 kilos of weight before we even consider a reversal. And I was like, really? You want me to put, I was like, that's not even possible because I couldn't do that when I was healthy. They were like, well, basically it was an ultimatum. That you, that's your only option. I was like, all right. In my head, I was like, fuck you. But I said to him, challenge accepted. And then from there, it was just, all of it was tunnel vision. So that's there you go then. That's that's the point that I'm, I'm trying to get to. So you could have sat there if they turned around and said to you, you need to put on 16 kilo worth of weight. 16 kilo, even when you're healthy, fucking hell, that's a lot of weight to put on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you're probably thinking, you could have sat there and thought, how the hell am I going to put on 16 kilo with all this stuff going on and all this, you know, with my body weight dropping so low and this, that, yeah. and you could have just sat there and, and done it. But... The beauty of it is, and this is what I respect you for so much, 
is your mindset where you thought, fuck you, challenge accepted, let's do it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, not many people can do that. And, you know, I'm very proud of myself in, in a lot of respects because, you know, it puts me, in my opinion, it puts me in the top tier of humans on this planet because I don't know anyone personally who can do the shit I do day in and day out to this day and what I went through. You know, and I love to meet people on the same level because I would want to give them a hug because, mm. you know, that I can sympathise with them. And, you know, going back to just a point I was making earlier about I was in search for someone who's gone through what I've gone through and I wanted to kind of like some inspiration or what have they done in the same way that so many people come to me and there was not one person. Every single person I found was like, oh, yeah, I live a great life with a bag. You know, I can go to the pub and drink 10 pints or I can, you know... I can have sex normally. I can do this, that, new. And I'm like, fuck that, you fucking assholes. <laughs> Where's the person who's not accepting that you have to shit into a bag? Granted, a lot of people help lead better lives, and I'm really happy that they're leading better lives. But I didn't have that experience with a bag that is. You know. But you mentioned as well a lot of these people that you're probably talking to, I'm presuming, were a lot older as well. There's probably not that many people in... No, you'd be surprised. Okay, so okay. You'd be surprised. There's a lot of people who are still in uh, like late teens, early 20, 20s. It's becoming really common to have the ileostomy bug, bear in mind, which I wasn't aware of at the time until like as things went on. It's like well, so many people have it at, you know, at such young ages because the kind of mentality, um, I would say, in the medical industry is like, oh, you've got a bit of a disease part, let's just chop it out. Um, that's just kind of a very simple way of putting it and mm. you know some people would disagree but that's how I view it it's kind of like pills and surgery easiest options so so many people are on medication obviously but have ileostomy bags or stomas or colostomy bags in, in that nature um, so I wasn't I was on the hunt please fucking help me is there anyone there was no one so I set that bar super high for myself which is now you know there's so many people around the world I mean I've got videos made about my transformation in Russia, which has had over a million views. I've got BBC, which has like 1.5 million views. It, it, it blew up. And, and I'm really glad because I, I wasn't going out to inspire other people at all. That's not my intention. I wasn't there to motivate anyone. I did it all for myself. But once I did it, I was like, oh, this is, my, this is what I went through. This is my story. And I actually started with a blog. And I said to myself before I wrote it, if I can inspire one person to make a positive change in their life, I'd be extremely happy. Fast forward, I've inspired, I'm going to guess, thousands of people now. I've helped thousands of people. I know that for a fact. Across the globe, I get people message me in uh, Austria, Brazil, Croatia, um, Afghanistan, Albania, like really, even countries that are, like, how did you even come across my story? Um and that's extremely heartwarming to me and it makes me extremely proud and happy because it's just, I'm, I'm setting an example for people who are who, who feel defeated and ready to quit and you're just giving up on, on life because they're going through such a hard time. Whereas I'm now a role model to so many people, which wasn't my intention, but it makes me extremely happy in that respect because I hate, I know what I went through, but I hate other people being in pain or in upset and, and things of that nature not just with Crohn's but I mean just in generally in life which led me to gut health coaching because I don't want people to suffer I don't want them to feel like they're being failed or they don't know who to speak to 
Whereas I come from a sympathetic point of view because I went through the worst of the worst. Mm. Um, I want people to heal. I want people to be happy. I want them to be positive. And that's easy for me to say, but for them to kind of take that on board, it's very hard when they're going through such a, a hard time. You know, with yourself, you, you had your pec injury. I, I can imagine what you were going through because it had a big impact on your life. Any lifestyle with your powerlifting as well. So I am very sympathetic to a lot of people in that respect. And I'm just really glad that I was able to be a role model for other people when I was in search and there was no one I could physically find who's who's had the reversal and led a better life. But yeah. So I mean, I think the most important part is, is from what you said is is it's absolutely amazing. Your story is 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 truly inspiring. I've said that from the start. Um, but again, something that resonates with me is the reason I came out with my story to talk about my story was so that people can understand that even people that you see that are physically strong or mentally they seem really happy and so on and so forth even they could be facing some kind of a battle and there there would be some kind of a battle going on in their in their life and it's okay to talk about it so hence the reason why I decided to speak up and talk about it and and get people like yourself on the podcast to inspire people basically to um to you know to, to talk if there is any issues and people do overcome adversity and there is a beautiful side of it once you once you overcome it. So that's the biggest challenge. Um, so you've accepted the challenge now, and let's fast forward to that stage. So let's fast forward a couple of months into that. So you've accepted the challenge. You, you know you need to put on 16 kilos of weight some way or another. So you've accepted that challenge. So talk to me a bit, talk to me a bit about that. So what happened there was it wasn't going to happen 100% naturally through diet because what was happening when I was consuming food is coming straight out. So I'm not absorbing anything because now I've got a short, a lot shorter bowel because there's another like 10 feet of bowel underneath the aliostomy bag that's not being used. So I had to get, I had to go back to hospital. They said I could be in there for three months. I was like, fuck me, three months. I'm like, I, I, I don't want to stay in the hospital for three months because I wanted to feed me intravenously into my bicep. Okay. Which is called uh, TPN, total pronal. I forgot that what it stands for now. So TPN, basically. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's basically a cable that goes through a vein in my bicep and ran up my shoulder, across my chest, and down towards my heart. Hmm. So they'll plug in um, a big bag of basically like liquid food and uh, i think the calories were around 1500 so it was going straight into my body and bypassing my stomach and i was on that i started off with 24 hours a day hooked up on that and i'm wheeling it around then it went down to 20 hours a day and then 16 and then eventually it was 12 and it stayed at 12 hours a day i was hooked up to that uh, feed but I ended up staying in the hospital for a month and a half, which is a, a very, very long time to spend in the hospital. But in that time, I left 10 kilos heavier. So I was roughly 43 kilos now from 33 when I first went in. And I was eating five meals a day religiously. What did you need to get to? What was the goal again, Manny? 50? 16, 16. No, but what was the total weight you needed to get up to? 50. 50, okay. Yeah, so now I'm at 43 so I'm like seven kilo, another stone to go. And I'm already 
I'm not far off now. I started to look up and feel better. My confidence came back. I, I wouldn't stop talking again because before I was quiet. I had no energy. I had no, like my testosterone was low. My Everything was just fucking low. And now I'm like, like a, I felt like a new man, even though physically I look fucked, but I was just rejuvenated. And so I got to leave and I'm still seven kilo lighter, but now I'm, I'm physically, I can walk again. I can, I'm more active. I can go out and about. And I remember it was Vasaki, which is our Sikh uh, holy day. And I went to the march of Nagagitan and no one knew what was going on behind the scenes in my life. And I've not seen anyone in a long time because I've been so ill. And I went and I was like, you know what? If I can walk even a bit of this Nagagitan, the Sikh walk, the march, I'd be happy. I walked the whole thing there and back without any issues. And I, only one person knew what I was going through. And he was really, he was by my side from fucking day one. And he was my biggest support. No, he wasn't my biggest support because there's so many, but he was a strong support. And I have the utmost love and respect for him for that. And, and I had a bag. So no one knew I had a bag underneath my clothes as well. And I did the walk. And I, I got home and I was so proud of myself. I, like, I can't believe a month earlier, I could barely walk to the front door like without being in so much um, agony. And I was so tired and fatigued that I had to lay down for like 10 minutes to recover from walking such a short distance. And, you know, it was really nice because I saw so many people, oh, I haven't seen you in ages, how sings? And I'm thinking in the back of my head, like, I'm not saying, oh, by the way, I've nearly died. It's like, oh, yeah, it's been, it's, it's, it's been a while. Yeah. It's like, just get on with life. Oh, yeah, it's, things are all right. Like, how things are you? But deep down, I'm going through, like, the worst of the worst battles of my life. And um, fast forward a little bit. Um, what happened was, and bear in mind, I would pray every day and I'll manifest. And I just, I'm like, all I wanted now was this reversal surgery. I wasn't bothered about the weight as much. It was a focus. Like, I'm like, I need to get to 50 kilo. But I just really wanted this reversal surgery because then I can rebuild. I couldn't really rebuild myself before that. <clears throat> and then one day I woke up to change my bag because I had to change that bag every day because it would fill up with waste and, you know, it's, it's not hygienic. So I went to change it and I found like six inches of my intestine had just fallen out of my stomach as you do. And it was just like dangling in the inside of my leg. Bright red intestine on the inside of my groin like this, Right. Oh, it was, I was shocked. That was the only time in my life where I was stunned and shocked. In the, I was speechless. And I was like, looking down, I was like, oh my God. I went to uh, like my mum and sister. I was like, look what's fucking happened. Like my intestines is falling out of my fucking body. And so we rang, the, I had a nurse would come every Friday um, to check my stomach. She would sort out my fluids and stuff like that and change like the it's called a pick line so they've changed like the needle and stuff in my arm that was permanently in my arm the whole time and she didn't know what to do she was scared she was like i think you need to go to the hospital she was like i was like oh shit so i went to the hospital and they basically give me three options they said we can remove that six inches but i bear in mind i've already had one foot chopped out mm. so we didn't want another six inches being cut out because that will leave me a short bowel syndrome and that causes so many complications. So that's like worst case scenario. Do like refashion where they basically just do surgery to put it back in my gut, which I didn't see the point in. They want to go through surgery just to put the intestine back in and still have a bag. 
Because I all I wanted, all I prayed and cared about was reverse my fucking intestines. So then the third option was reverse. But I wasn't at that body weight. I was like 50. At this point, I was like 45, 46 kilos. So I wasn't far off. I was really close. But my Crohn's wasn't in remission either at that point, which was another part of the of them doing it. And the next, they put me in the hospital. A surgeon came to me and they're like, oh, what shall we do for your money? Oh, what shall we do with you, money? He said. I said, reverse my ileostomy bag. Just reverse it. Uh, he goes, that's a good idea, but we need to see because you're on this medication and, you know, your cause needs to be in remission. We have to, like, see if it's safe. I was like, just please reverse the ileostomy bag. That's all I want. Don't do, don't refashion it. Don't re- remove anything. Just reverse it. He goes, okay. Because he had to speak with another doctor who specialised in the medication I was taking to see if it was safe. So next day, I'm waiting patiently for a whole day, and I'm just like, come on, give me some good fucking news for once in my life. Next day, he comes, he goes, oh, what should we do with you, then, money? I was like, reverse, reverse, reverse. He goes, that's a good idea, actually. I think we'll reverse it. And I was like, what? I was like, are you joking? He goes, no, no, we'll reverse it. I was like, yes, thank you. And I was just I mean, the utmost happiness and gratitude at that point because I've never, this is the first and the only time in my life where I'd be so happy to have major surgery. So at this point, I'm thinking I'm going to rebuild my life. I'm gonna, it's going to be amazing. And I spent a week in that hospital because I want a high priority. I just get pushed back and pushed back. So I, was, I spent a week in hospital doing nothing. I just laying, just chilled. But bear in mind, I was a bit more active so I can get out and about. I could walk this time. And the surgeon came to me and said, oh, we, we, they kept saying, oh, you have to fast. So I fast for 24 hours. Oh, we can't do the surgery today. So then next day, oh, you have to fast again. And I did that like three days in a row and I was getting vexed. I was like, stop making me fast and just do the fucking surgery. And I, I was getting really pissed off with him. So I spent months, it was about the sixth day I was in hospital and they weren't doing any surgery. Because uh, other emergencies came through, which I completely understand. But at the same time, like I'm, th- then on day six, they said, oh, we're going to have to give you an elected spot. You have to go home and then we'll bring you back in. I said, I'm not leaving this hospital. I've been here for six days. I've been promised this surgery and you're just wasting my time. I'm not leaving until the surgery is done. So, like, all right, 10 minutes later, a surgeon comes in. All right. Let, and then start going through the formalities. Like, oh, you changed your tune. I had to put my foot down. Because it's beyond a fucking joke at this point. I'm like, I want my fucking life back. It's not like, this is not a game. Yeah. So this surgeon came in. He saw me um, before, um, when, my, when my bowel perforated. So like before all the weight deteriorated, he saw me from day one. and But he hasn't seen me since in that gap. So he goes, oh, um, how you doing? I remember you. He goes, you was very buff when I saw you before. And I said, yeah, that was a that's a faded memory now. And I was like, it made me, that was more motivation, not motivation, because I'm not even going to use the word motivation. That was more, it added more fuel to my fire because like he remembered how I looked before this all happened. I was in good shape. He caught, He said I was buff. I don't know who used the word buff anymore. I don't know who uses it. That's something like Johnny Bravo, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, it really is um, but it, I was really happy that he remembered who I was and he remembered what I, I used to look like and in my head I was like I'm going to look better than that 
So he fought on Buff before. That that's bullshit compared to what I'm gonna look like. You watch so how we, buff I'm gonna get now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Coming fucking buff daddy. <laughs> and um, so what happened was he sat there and he explained all the risks and everything that's gone on. He said to me in this conversation, and the key point I want to highlight was he goes, You have to have a protein level of 30. I don't really know what that means in context, but he said your protein level needs to be 30 before we even consider doing the surgery. He goes, your protein level being at 28, 29. I was like, right. I said, can't you do it? Then he explained to me, because I said to him, can't you just do the surgery and then I can increase my protein levels? He goes, it's like going to war without an army and then suddenly enrolling um, soldiers after the wars happened. And I was like, okay. So he goes, we need your protein levels to be at, at least 30, but ideally 32 for us to do surgery. And he goes, but fortunately, your protein level today has hit 30. I was like, so what does that mean? He goes, we can do the surgery. He goes, a lot of surgeons wouldn't do it at 30. It needs to be 32. But I'm tell- he like made it clear about the risks and you know what's involved and what will happen. He basically said, you need the protein levels at, th- at least 32. So when you reattach the intestine and staple it back together, um, it might fall apart. It's, he literally said it, like, it will just unravel and then you'll have another surgery and it will just cause a lot a lot of problems and death I said to him I'm so confident that I'm going to be really good and I'm going to be better I said do the surgery he goes are you sure because because I'm okay with it even though you just just scraped that protein level Hmm. and it was a massive risk because you know that the testing could have literally just detached and I said just do the surgery because I know I'm confident in myself what I'm going to do next so they did the surgery, and wow, that was um, some excruciating pain, that surgery. Like, I can't describe how painful it was post-surgery. And I was on Tramadol every day, and Tramadol is a very powerful uh, painkiller as well. It didn't really do much for the pain. And I spent... So the, the goal was now is basically to have a bowel movement and go for a shit. That's the ultimate way that I've healed and proved that everything's working as planned but nothing was happening they basically wanted me to fart and the surgeon would come every morning do his rounds he's like oh man are you farted yet i was like nah he, he called it he goes right what you need is the fart of truth and it always stuck with me that and it still it'll always forever stick with me he's like <laughs> and it, it was like the fart of truth so i'm there laying in that hospital bed you know i'm praying to babaji and i'm praying to the universe please i just want to fucking let one rip come on like, please. By day at six, that time, look, we, we laugh about it now. The way that, the, in the context, the way that you're putting it now, right? It is, it, it's funny, right? But at that point in time, you must be thinking seriously, though. All I need is a fucking fart, and I can get my fucking life back in order again. Yeah, basically, yeah. like that proves that the my, the the floor, my bowel movements and stuff like, that, and the air is passing through the back part where they've attached it. So that was proof to him. So yeah. I know we're joking about it now. It's funny in hindsight, but at the time it's not that funny. So I'm just there, like, come on. And it was day six. I'm excruciating pain. I feel like I couldn't talk. I'm like holding tears back because I couldn't deal with what was going on. And bear in mind now, I've got like a three-inch hole in my gut because where the intestine used to be, is a big hole in my abdomen, which is a weak area, and which probably still is to this day, really. I hope it isn't. And 
I refused to have any medication orally because I was like, no, because I've just had my intestines reattached. Like, it's especially tramadol, they're giving it through the infusion. And I, they kept saying, no, you need to have the tablet, you need to have the tablet. I was like, no, 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 I don't want to have the tablet. And so it got to day five, and I was like, okay, I'll take the tablet. And that tablet must have helped because it, then it, it must have just helped the flow because what was happening, I was in so much pain, like everything I was drinking and consuming was reaching that point where the reattachment was, that it wasn't going past it. So it was just building up in my gut and causing distend, uh, distended gut, and it was really painful as well put on top of the surgery. And then what happened was I laid in bed, I was like, oh, and it was nighttime. And I felt a bit of wind passing through. I was like, oh, wait a second, something's going on. And I'm like, okay. And it was like like one in the morning, maybe. And I thought I was going to fart. But basically, I fucking shit myself. I was like, oops. And I, I quickly got out. like Not even like a shark, like I actually shit myself. I was like, whoops. And I got out and I went to the toilet. And I managed to go. And I was like, oh, yes. And I went to like a healthcare assistant or a nurse. And I was like, oh, I had a bit of an accident in the bed. The bed sheets kind of need changing. It was slightly <laughs> awkward. And oh, that's fine. And they literally just raveled it all up and just took it all off. And the next day now, surgeon came, asked me the same question again, like he did every day. Manny, have you had the fart of truth? I said, no, but I uh, had a bowel movement. He went, ah, you've had the poo of truth. And I was like, yeah, I'm actually. And he goes, you know what? That's good enough for me. You can go home. So that was six days post-surgery. Uh, so again, I spent another two weeks in the hospital at that point. And what happened was, so now I had no one to pick me up. Like, I'm ready to go. Like, get me the fuck out of this hospital. Uh, and now I can start my life. I can regain control of my fucking life. And I put a post up on Facebook of like a before and after picture at that point. And I had such an overwhelming amount of um, comments and support and kind messages and people were like, oh, you know, where are you? Like, I'll come see you. And I was like, I'm in hospital. Someone, I just need a lift. And someone picked me up. <laughs> so one of my friends, I've not seen him at that point in a couple of years. He came and picked me up from the hospital. And he was like, we're just chatting. And he said, just go home and rest. I got home for 10 minutes. And I was like, I'm bored. I'm like, what do I do now? And so the first thing I did was I got changed and I went I went to a bar, but not to drink. I went, to, because it was sunny, it was a bank holiday, May bank holiday in 2017. So I went out and I just got on with life. I had no pain, no problems, no issues. I left after two major surgeries, which is not common. I don't know anyone who can fucking do this and leaves the hospital and I, like nothing happened. So the same day, I just kind of got on with things and not, I didn't rest. The day after that, I had uh, two weddings to go to. And I was like, well, I don't know if I can come to these weddings beforehand, obviously, because I'm in the middle of hospital going through major bowel surgery. So I came out on the Thursday. Um, there was a wedding party on the Friday and another one on the Saturday. And bear in mind, I couldn't get a haircut in all this time. And I look like like most people in COVID with no haircut and trims. Fucking telling me, man, you're telling me. I'm all right, I've got a trim. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, so I, I cleaned myself up, went to the wedding party on the Friday, saw everyone acting on Not a single person could tell what I went through. No, no, no one even knew. I didn't even tell anyone. And people saw the Facebook post, but what I really went through, no one really knew. And the fact that I managed to 
at normal, I, I got through the wedding party and I had a really good time and I was really happy to see everyone again. Next day, I went to another wedding. Again, no one knew what happened, really. A couple of people saw, oh, like, I saw what happened in the pictures, but they didn't know I just left the hospital a day before and I just put my suit on and just kind of got on with my life because, again, that comes back to mental strength. I'm like, I'm not going to sit at home and fucking rest. I'm like, I'm back on this now. I'm out. See you later. And then that's how it was. And then it was just, again, just pure tunnel vision. I've got what I wished and I prayed for every single day now. Now it's time to make some moves. And I couldn't go back to, the, I said, when can I go back to the gym? Bear in mind, I still had the, the pick line in my arm. So I was still getting fed intravenously um, two months post-surgery. So I was on that 12 hours a day at home. So I could only go out and it was summer now. So I had to come home and just kind of hook myself up and walk around the house with uh, the bag, the feed attached to my arm and sleep with it. So I had to sleep with it next to my bed on a little drip stand and sleep on one side. And what happened was um, six weeks later, I remember I was like, I went food shopping. I was like, oh, I can start doing normal, normal shit again. I went food shopping, came home. My arms and legs started shaking like vigorously. I mean, I couldn't control it. It was scary. Like it was like a really severe case of like Parkinson's. I didn't know what it was and I was scared and there was no one home and, and, and no one around. Everyone's at work and I didn't know who to call. So I was just, and I, and it was, my body was shaking so hard that all my body was hurt from shaking so much and for so long. And eventually it just calmed down, but it took a long time for my whole body to just stop shaking so fucking vigorously. And then my sister came home from work and this was like hours, hours later. And she felt my forehead. She goes, oh, you got a temperature. And as soon as she said that, I was like, oh, for fuck's sake, I've got an infection. Went A&E. They said, yeah, you got an infection. I said, they said it could be an infection from your surgery or whatever general infection or your pick line. But before they said your pick line, which was the cable in my arm, I was like, I think it's a pick line infection. And that's best case scenario because then they can just pull it out and then give me antibiotics. It turns out it was, uh, I, that got infected. But at that point, I'm healthy and my weight's pretty much up around... 47 kilo, 46 kilo it was, I remember actually, because it was a guy who commented, who was a, like a, a nurse, and he goes, oh, you're very light, aren't you? And I'm thinking, you shut the fuck up, because you don't know what I've gone through. Don't make comments like that to me about, oh, you're light. Like, if you could go through what i just gone through, then you won't make comments like that. Anyways, um, so they eventually just pulled it out, and it was this really long fucking thing that came from my chest all the way across my shoulder and out my bicep. And I was like, all oh, right, I can stop getting... I was on that feed for four months, um, basically for 12 hours a day for four months. And my whole house was turned into a clinical room. I had a big fridge to store it all. I had boxes of medical equipment everywhere in the house. It was just awful. And then, so six weeks, post-surgery, um, the wound in my stomach is... So it's a big hole, and they don't um, reseal it. They leave it as a gaping hole, and it has to heal all the way to the skin. That took four months to heal uh, fully. But after six weeks, I went back to the gym. I was like, fuck that. I'm back on this. Started at the very bottom. If I had an ego, it would have got wounded because I was struggling with the 20 kilo bar. And before, I was probably about an 80 kilo bencher. Been there. I've been there. The, the, yeah, absolutely. I've the been there. You, the 20 absolutely. kilo bar. But you just think to yourself, fucking hell. 
this is just the bar. But, yeah. and, but if, you, if you think about the journey as in, how the fuck am I going to get back up to what I wanted to get back up to? You'd never do it. You'd never do it. So you, yeah. I think it's a case of you, you need to just take each day as it comes and think, you know what? It's going to take time. But like the big thing is what we mentioned at the beginning, consistency. Consistency yeah, absolutely. is key. And I was looking at the bigger picture in that respect as well. Because now, going back to what I said to myself from day one, I want to come back stronger, faster, harder, more intelligent. That was still the case. So I went back to the gym after six weeks, which no one, I don't know anyone on this planet who's gone back that quick after the surgeries that I've had. And it was a slow rebuilding process, and, and I knew that. And that was completely fine because I had to start from the beginning. And then... So I went back to the gym straight after. So I turned 27 on the 27 uh, on the 7th of July, 2017. On the 10th of July, I went back to the gym. By the time it got from, bear in mind, before that, my PB deadlift was 145 kilo. And I was roughly about 48 kilo at the time of doing that. So Fuck it, that's a lot. Yeah, that's 48 yeah. kilo? Fuck yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so when I got back in the gym... Um, I started deadlift. I didn't deadlift straight away because my wound didn't heal. So once that fully healed after four months, then I started deadlifting. But I was doing all light bodybuilding stuff. Within, so I started deadlifting in September. By November, I hit. Actually, let me just kind of step back a bit because in, when I was younger, I always said to myself, like, I'm limited in what I can pull because of my size. If I could ever pull a 160 kilo deadlift. That's my pinnacle of pinnacle deadlifts ever in my head. Like, if I put 160, I'm retiring, I'm done. I'm, I'll be super happy, like, with a 160. So from September to November, I pulled 170 kilo deadlift. And at this point, I was five months post-surgery. So I just... Wait, weighing how much again, sorry? So by this point, I was around... 52 kilo at this point. So I was getting heavier. Fuck yeah now. So you're what? So you're talking about what? Five months post-surgery, you're 52 kilo, which your weight's slowly going up, and you've pulled up a 170. Yeah. I pulled 170 kilo. And again, no one's fucking doing that on this planet. And so what happened was, I was always interested in, in powerlifting, but I didn't know where to begin. I didn't know who to speak to. I knew nothing about that world i knew about bodybuilding i knew about training because i've done it for so many years but should have called me (laughs) if i knew that four years ago and what happened was is a guy um and we knew of each other i knew his brothers really well and i used to see him when i would train because i trained during the day because i was out of work still and we got chatting and i was like are you a powerlifter because he's always like geared up spd gear doing deadlifts and squat. And I was like, he goes, yeah, yeah, I've competed five times this year. And I said, you know what? I would really love to get into powerlifting. I just don't know where to start. And he goes, he asked me my numbers. And I said, well, at that point, I pulled out 170 deadlift, which was my my strongest lift. And it's that's what I'm known for. I'm a deadlifter. My squat was like 80 kilo on a good day. And my bench was 70. So they were still creeping back up. But I mean, not for a powerlifting competition, they were shite. Um, so probably about two weeks later, he texts me and he, he goes, I've been looking at the, the records. He goes, the Yorkshire 
and off his deadlift record is 175 kilo. And then he started looking at like what people are pulling in Britain. He goes, based off your numbers, you could probably be third in Britain. And I was like, third in Britain? I was like, shit, man, I've only been back in the gym five months and I've, after these two surgeries. And I had my eyes set on that deadlift record. I was like, if I put 170 now, I can easily blast one, past 175. So in November, we both kind of agreed, right, let's look at competitions. And there was one in January, so I had 10 weeks for a comp. And bear in mind, I don't know powerlifting techniques. I don't know timing and signals and all the rest of it at this point. So he coached me. He made me a program and he taught me powerlifting. So I had 10 weeks to prepare for my first comp. And I was like, you know what, this will be my... It's like my coronation, so to speak, of what I've been through. It's my validation, right? I said I want to be faster, stronger, harder, more intelligent. What's the best way to do it on a strength sport, on a platform? Who's the fucking strongest person on that platform? So I'm like, yeah, I'm doing this 100%. And I said I'm pulling 180. I'm pulling four plates, 180 kilo, and I'm taking that record home with me. That's all I care. I didn't care about winning. I didn't care about anything. I, I wanted that deadlift record. That was to prove a point to myself. And so I trained 10 weeks religiously and I was solid. And it's, again, that's a very short space of time to compete, especially when I've come from rebuilding my body and my strength. It's not like I was super strong and then I prepped for a competition. like most That's nothing. It's nothing. I agree. It's, yeah, it's, it's for call. It's, it's yeah. too short of a space of time. So I went to this competition and my, my, I'm not a squatter, generally speaking. Even though now I can squat 160 kilo at 56 kilo body weight. At that time... When I first started the powerlifting, like I said, I had an 80 kilo squat. I needed to be in the 120 to 140 mark to kind of be normal. And in the gym, I managed to get to a 120 squat and I was super happy. I was like, yo, I've got 120 squat. That's a big deal now. And that was a big PB, all-time PB as well at the time. And I went to competition. The other guys, their openers were higher than, a lot higher than mine. But I was like, I know I'm, I'm taking everyone on the deadlift. That's what, you know, you lot can have your little squat. I'm taking you on the deadlift. It's game over then. So I squatted all-time PB at that time, 130 kilo. And I was, I was really happy because, like, I never even touched 130 at that point. Uh, I benched, my bench blasted them all. Uh, my opener actually was higher than their third lifts, in fact. So I opened at 80 and then I went 85, 90 kilos. So my last, and I hit my third 90 kilo bench. Again, that was a big PB for me. Then it was like, oh, all right, main event's coming here. Main event money on the platform deadlift. That's what I was thinking that uh, record's coming with me. Um, and at this point, it was, I think I just nudged ahead or I was in second place at this point. And I looked at the openers of the other guys. My opener would just put me in first place straight away, like with a big margin. So I think one guy opened at 140, another guy opened at 145 kilo deadlift. I opened at 162 and a half. So it was like a 20 kilo gap. So now I've, I've, I've clinched the competition. So once I hit the opener, I've taken first place, hands down. But I was like, I'm not bothered about winning. I'm not bothered about qualifying. I'm here for that fucking deadlift record. So I went 172 and a half, blasted that. I was like 180, and, and I'd hit 180 once in the gym as well before the competition. But it's completely different because they're bumper plates and it's a gym environment. I was like, right, I need to prove it on this platform. 
and the crowd there was a big uproar and I heard like voices that I didn't recognize like come on money and I'm thinking who the fuck is that who <laughs> I didn't know who it's it was. It's a good like, feeling, though, isn't it? It's a oh, good it's feeling. A, I can't describe the adrenaline and the hype, and just the, it's a generally a fucking amazing feeling. I love that feeling. So I've pulled one eighty, and there's a picture from the photographer where my eyes are closed, and you can just see that I've just soaked in that moment where I'm just like, like it was a big sigh of relief, and I've locked out one eighty. I put it down, and the guy, uh, the MC, and the mic was like, "Oh, that's a good lift," and. The, one of the guys are competing against, he went, good lift, good lift. He fucking broke the record. <laughs> and and he was cheering me on and I was competing against him. I'm going there like, I'm a competitive guy as well. So I'm like, mindset like, fuck you lot. But at the same time, I had a lot of respect for the other guys as well. And, you know, it was really nice and there was great sportsmanship that he was cheering me on. Again, even though we we're competing against each other. I think that's so, the sport of powerlifting, though, isn't it? I think even when I've been at competitions, when I've been competing against each other, I actually become, I had one rival and um, at a young age, and I think my body weight was around about 67 then. I was lifting in the 67 class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was a case of he was like the deadlift man, and I knew my fucking deadlift is fucking not too bad as well, right? Because my deadlift's strong, right? Yeah. And in the first competition, it was sort of neck and neck. And then um, the second competition, again, it was another close one. But we became really good friends afterwards. And, oh, really? Yeah, become really good friends. And then after the competition, it was the, the Europeans. Um, we were probably about 17. And uh, we had to wait for all the heavyweights and everything to finish before we collected our medals and stuff. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, we started drinking together. We had a whale of a time. <laughs> that's and like, amazing. Yeah, but it's it, it's it's just that I think that's the beauty of the sport of powerlifting. That's why I love it so much is because yeah. even when you're competing against people, people still drive you to push you. It's not there's not that sour sort of grapes where people are like, you know, I don't want him to do that because then he'll yeah, beat yeah, me absolutely. or whatever. Obviously, everyone's got their competitive side, and obviously, everyone wants to win. I mean, this is the same with me. But yeah, yeah. the beauty of it is, is after it, you can shake hands and turn around and say, "Do you know what? Enough respect," and discuss, you know, what That's your training regime is. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And what you said, you know, there's so much respect in the sport of powerlifting. You know, what before I got into it, I thought, you know, it's a lot of egos and testosterone, and it's kind of like, you know, fuck you and fuck you. But in reality, it was exactly what you said, and it's spot on. There's so much camaraderie and sportsmanship and respect. It's I love the powerlifting as a whole because of well that factor really. So going back to what was going on on that competition day, that was uh, the Yorkshire Northeast qualifiers. I hit that 180, so I brought that Yorkshire Northeast deadlift record, which is what I went for, and that was me, my validation, my coronation. I'm fucking happy, you know. Deadlifting was my thing. And I just blasted it. I went for nine for nine lifts, which is a big deal in powerlifting, as you know. I qualified for the Yorkshire Northeast Championship and the British Championships at the same time. And I equaled the total record as well. I didn't break it. I equaled it because I didn't know. If I knew, I would have tried to break it, actually. I didn't didn't realise at the time. And bear in mind, the weight class was 59 kilo and I weighed 53 so I was a full stone under the weight class. And yeah, I, I broke the record. I matched the total record and I won. So that was a, even, a, I was even prouder because I thought, imagine if I was one stone heavier, I'd blast everyone out the fucking water. But 
by that point, I was struggling to put my weight on. I managed to get to 56 kilo and I just stayed there. Every competition I did, I was still half a stone lighter than everybody else because, as you know, in powerlifting, you, you're heavier than the weight class. You cut down into the weight class, generally speaking. Generally speaking, yeah. 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 Right. Whereas I was the opposite. I'm like, I'm trying to put weight on. So I would eat and eat and eat to try and get heavy as possible, but I couldn't get nowhere near 59. I'm at it now. Um, I'm at like around 59, 60. But during them times, I was just struggling. So to me, I, I won my first competition after, you know, very, very short preparation period. I brought the record for the first time. Again, that was a big fucking deal to me, and it still is to this day. And at that point, it was 11 months. So you, if you've seen that picture of me on my Instagram and all my friends' regs where I'm a skinny, frail Mm. Man, yeah. So fast forward eleven months, and now I've just blasted a powerlifting competition and broke a deadlift record. And at that point, it was eight months post surgery as well. So you know, if you say that in context, eight months after two major bowel surgeries, and I go on to break a deadlift record and win a, a competition, you think, wait a second, in that time, how did the fuck did you manage to put the weight on and even get strong and then even prepare? Like, how is it feasible? Well, it's money fucking Tory talking about. Get in there, my boy. <laughs> that's it. And that's why I I should have called myself this, actually. But I've been nicknamed The Machine. And I feel like it's very apt and true because clearly I'm a fucking machine. And that's how I perceive myself. In- I think more fucking Terminator, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> no, right. I am a fucking Terminator. I'll be back. <laughs> but- Brilliant. Brilliant. Um so Manny, going into uh, we're, we're coming towards the end now. Um, so can you talk to me about what you do? I know we've touched on it quite a bit throughout this whole podcast. Um, how can people reach out to you, and can you give us a bit of an insight on what you do as a gut health coach? Yeah, absolutely. So from a gut health point of view, I specialize in Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis. IBS, gastritis, leaky gut, and autoimmune disease that manifest in the gut as well. Um, a big part of what I do is, it's not just a, a diet, because a lot of people say to me, oh, what do you eat? Because I can tell you what I eat, but you won't replicate what I've done in terms of healing. It's a big picture, and I coach you through that. I have 90-day programs where we discuss uh, dietary routine. We discuss how to handle stress and your mindset. Lifestyle habits is a big factor to play. And um, what's included is part of the packages is you, we have 60 minute weekly check-ins via Zoom. You have full access to me via an app called Voxer, which is a messaging app. So you can pick my brain. You could tell me, ask me questions. You can tell me like small and big wins. And also I've devised three eBooks, which are roughly 220 pages long, which are literally the gut health healing Bible. And, you know, you would swear by it through your program. And I've had a great success with clients already. And so to find out more, check out allmyfriendsregs.com. Check out All My Friends Regs on Instagram and my YouTube channel as well, where I have a variety of videos based on not just gut healing, but general health as well. If you suffer from, say, insomnia, hay fever, if you wanted to learn about healing herbs from Mother Nature, I've all of that covered. So subscribe to me on All My Friends Regs as well on YouTube. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Manny. Manny, why is it called All My Friends Are Eggs? Are all your friends eggs? 
Well, I want to hear your theory, Bali. Why do you think I've called it all my friends are eggs? Because this is more interesting to me. Why are your friends all eggs? Yeah. I do not have a clue. I really do not have a clue. I normally enjoy hearing the theories because people are like, well, eggs is protein and he, he lifts weight. So is it like... So, okay, so <laughs> all my friends are eggs. Is it something based around the egg itself? So from the outside... Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Is it... Do I get a prize for this? Is it... If is you get it, it right, you would definitely get a prize. Is it... If you're demonstrating an egg, it's hard on the inside... But if you crack the inside, which will be your gut, and if you're eating shit, that's just going to come out. <laughs> I absolutely love that theory. I, that should be the new reason. But no, <laughs> it's not as like in-depth as that, because I hear so many theories like, well, eggs come in a pack of six, and therefore it means, you know, he has only six friends, or, you know, like, <laughs> you've got to have like six elements to it, and it's like all sorts of random shit. And I really enjoy hearing them. But the truth is, when I originally wrote my story after I went through all my hardship, I wanted to, I wrote it as a blog on allmyfriendsregs.com originally, and it's still there now, where I didn't want to call it something generic like Manny's transformation or Manny's story. I was like, well, I thought this could turn into something potentially in the future. I didn't know where it was going to go. I, I wasn't even thinking that far ahead. So I was like, I want like a brand. And I was speaking to one of my friends at the time because I couldn't, think I had a bit of a block I'm like what shall I call this and she's really creative and she's got a marketing mind and I thought she's the best person to ask and she was saying the stupidest things to me like or oh, I like shoving eggs up my bum or I like to fart a lot and I'm like you're gonna give me some serious suggestions she was like no no this is what I'm doing it's even though I was getting a bit annoyed and because I thought she was taking the piss out of me but in reality what she was doing was these random stupid suggestions trigger creative thoughts so she was just saying when she said like eggs she kept on banging about eggs because at the time I was eating a lot of eggs actually um just to get the weight on so she was all about oh, sticking eggs up your bum and then like why did you make out of an egg and I was like why do you talk about fucking eggs and so what happened was at that time there was a song by little Uzi Vert a rap song and he's like push me to the edge all my friends are dead so I'd sing that a lot and in the morning I'll make six eggs every morning so I'm making my eggs and I'll sing that song, push me to the edge, all my friends are dead. And I was like, push me to the edge, all my friends are eggs. So when she was giving me these fucking stupid suggestions and she's talking about eggs all the time, I was like, I know what I'm going to call it. I was like, push me to the edge, all my friends are eggs. And that's what I called it. And it stuck to this day. Wow. There you go then. But I still mm-hmm. think my, my theory is actually better. I actually there's, like it. There's more, there's more depth. To, there's more yeah, depth. Yeah, there than... is, uh, mine is just like, stupidity i tell you one thing when i eat my fucking eggs tomorrow i'm going to be thinking about that that's what i'll be thinking about that's it. Think of this. <laughs> all my friends are eggs <laughs> manny perfect thank you so much really really appreciate having you on and um if there's anybody out there that just wants to chat or just wants to talk about general gut health i cannot recommend enough get in touch with manny at all my friends are eggs All the best, guys, and take care.